When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Great to have you with us this Monday afternoon. Jay Jenkins in the studio for the rest of this week. Uh, We'll get back to all the trade stuff a bit later on. Julio will jump in after 5.30 to bring us up to date with everything that's taken place today and the kind of lay of the land, but pretty significant day around the world. Internationally, it's the um, uh, Mental Health Day right around the world where awareness and uh, destigmatization and uh, encouraging conversations is pivotal to um, a day like this. And Liam Stocker's a name that's been mentioned from a, a trade list management perspective on a radio station like this for the last couple of weeks for obvious reasons. But the work he's been doing in raising awareness just by telling his story, particularly through the Beyond Blue platforms in recent times, um, gives us cause to just pause, I reckon, and welcome him into the studio and say g'day and have a chat. So, uh, g'day. Thanks for coming in for a chat. Good to see you. Thank you for having me, boys. Why? Um, before we get into, you know, at the very end of this, we'll talk about where your footy's at and you know what hopefully comes next for you. But um, did did you have to find something within yourself that um, allowed you to feel comfortable at a really young age to start to open up and start telling your story the way you have, particularly in recent times through some of the Beyond Blue stuff that you've been doing? Uh, yeah, I don't really enjoy doing it that much like it's a bit um leaves you shaking in your boots a bit like I did a documentary earlier this year and that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do Mm. um talking to a camera about why I am the way I am and um unfortunately for me like my experience is pretty public um whether for good or for bad um but I think for the most part I just understood that when I was 14 or 15 I had no one to listen to like this um who was within my age demographic you know um, unfortunately when you're 15, 16 years old and you listen to, to a 45 year old talk about their experience, it doesn't really resonate. So, um, I guess it's a bit of a scare tactic, some could call it, but, um, for the most part, I just want there to be representation, um, and a bit of connection where there often isn't. When, can you remember how old you were when you, we'll go through your kind of chrono, chronologically, we'll go through your story as we have a chat, but can you remember how old you were when you first had some kind of awareness that, you just you just weren't fitting. You just weren't feeling connected to everything that was around you the way that maybe you thought you should be. I reckon if I had it, had more awareness at a younger age, I probably would have realised it sooner. But probably only sixteen or seventeen. Okay, right. When I yeah. really realised I wasn't fitting in very well, and it wasn't because I was different or anything like that. It was just because I wasn't very good at it. Um, you know, that, that was pretty typical of early signs of um, social anxiety, yeah. which you know, like I'd never heard those two words put in a sentence together. So, um, yeah, probably 16 or 17, I started to really struggle socially at school. Um, but I always had like little ticks, like obsessive compulsive behaviors and things like that. And for some, you know, it never turns into anxiety or depression, God forbid. But, um, for me, they were like early triggers that maybe I might fall down that path. 
just just lay it out, social anxiety, for those who don't know what it means or what it looks like. Just sort of lay it out as much as you're comfortable. What sort of examples can you give us of social anxiety? Um, I think at school the most common stuff was just stressing out about – and. And anxiety is worrying about what might or might not happen, by the way. Mm. Um, but social anxiety in particular is just um, intense stress about social situations. So talking to people you don't know, even for me, like sometimes it was talking to people I do know about stuff I didn't want to talk about. Yeah. Um, but sort of just running through every possible situation that things could go wrong in your head. Um, so at school that, you know, the most common examples of that are like where I sit in class, um, where I sit at lunchtime, who I speak to, like there would have been a hundred scenarios going through my head. Um, and probably the reason it's so bad, particularly for people with anxiety is that, um, you get so mentally fatigued that you just can't deal with a stressor if it does pop up. Um, so that was, that was how it looked at school. I think nowadays I'm, I'm really in control of things, which is great, but, um, particularly at the football club, like I struggled coming in and just speaking to the other boys because I didn't know them that well when I first came in. Um, I struggled with, you know, time trials and things like that because socially I was worried, you know, if you run a bad one. (laughs) <laughs> you're dead. Um, so for the most part, it's just worrying about um, things that may or may not happen, but it's the intense worry about those social situations, conversations, um, and particularly, you know, situations where you might feel uncomfortable. And does does that, the intense anxiety that you're talking about, does that have a, does that manifest physically? Like you talk about, let's talk about the, the sort of anxiety levels that you're, you were dealing with, and then you've got to go and run a two or three K time trial. Can it actually affect your physical output? Do you get so worried about it in the lead up to it that it that it has a physical impact? I don't know if it ever happened with a time trial. I certainly found it. And Andrew Russell's a guru with this yeah. kind of stuff. And, and he helped me like immeasurably over my time at Carlton with it. But um, there were times, you know, like I've had a few stress fractures over my time and there's no doubt, you know, it's a contributing factor. It's not what causes anything, mm. but for the most part, it's a contributing factor and it can influence your sleep and things like that. And we all know how important those things are. So, um, yeah, I, I guess like it can have a performance impact, um, for some, but it's not big enough to, to, yeah. to call it the sole reason for anything like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Hey boys, I hate to, I'll just intervene and we'll get back to, uh, we'll get, in fact, we'll get your thoughts on it. Yes, we will. Uh, so the mega deal has been uh, AFL approved. So North Melbourne, the Giants, Port Adelaide and West Coast are all involved. Horn Francis and Rioli will go to Port. The Giants will get pick one. West Coast will get pick eight and 12. North will get picks two, three, and a future first round pick. And then there's a heap of other pick swaps involved as well. So there's a fair bit. We'll, we'll unpack it later, obviously, but there's a fair bit to get your head around there. I didn't think something like that would be able to no. stand up. and not, not, not through the rules, just all the clubs agree to... It's pretty dramatic. That is pretty. That's pretty dramatic. So we'll we'll unpack all of that yes. when Julio jumps in after five thirty. Keltumian, afl.com.au. But instant reaction, biggest yeah. trade that's ever happened. I Close. Just can't believe that many clubs are in agreement. <laughs> yeah, that's frankly. what I. That's well, the bit that I. Well, can't. not with a future first round pick. Um, the pick one this year, the pick two. Well, the pick two this year, the pick three this year. Yeah, it's not any future. old. No, they're not. not, they're, not <laughs> they're not throwing away picks deep into the into the draft here. <laughs> that's incredible. So without, I don't. So you you're actually given this kind of um, you know being displaced in the hub and moving away from home as a young kid and then coming back to Melbourne through your through your old man's work and trying to find your feet and fit in. I wonder whether you've got a view on what this might mean to a couple of players in the middle of this. I don't, don't speculate if you don't feel comfortable, but clearly Jason Horn Francis last year felt 
um, unsettled being away from South Australia. It meant a lot to him to be around his family unit, perhaps more so than um, some hard liners around the game. He had to suck it up, kid, and, you know, this is a great career. And, and Junior Rioli's the other one who, um, despite the fact that West Coast have supported him through some, you know, turbulent and troubling times, he, he wanted to get uh, around some um, people who are close to him. How much could that impact and this is different than the stuff that you're talking about, but just being happy in your life and settled around people that mean a lot to you, how much of an impact might that have on a couple of these young footballers? I think for them, it's it's a decision-making process that, like, the only thing that can really influence it is what's making them happy. And, you know, for me, yeah. like, my family's massive for me too, don't get me wrong, but um, the opportunity to play footy for eight or ten years and then move back there is too great. Um, but I think for some guys, like particularly Jason, he's a super talented football player. And if it's an option, then, you know, mm, yeah. you, and you feel like you're going to play better football there. And yeah. I, I'd assume it's the same with Willie. Um, they're both super talented guys. Like if they feel like they're going to play better football there, then it's probably a win-win for both, especially if they don't feel comfortable at the club they're at. Mm. Give, uh, give, give me your, just before we keep going. Well, with, with, I sorry, just give think a, a lot of these, deci- a lot of the dis- a lot more decisions that we're seeing now, are, they're as much environmental decisions as they are playing decisions. I, I agree with that. You spend... Two hours a week playing and 20 hours a week training is a fair few hours to make up in the week. And a lot of these players are making environmental decisions. I think it puts the onus back on the football clubs as well to make sure your environment's as good as possible. It does. Yeah. Jack Bowes is a perfect example, isn't he? Almost everyone would say, why would you go to Geelong? Because are you even going to get a game? Go to Hawthorne, go to Essendon. He's he's obviously been sold by the environment and the club's won a premiership, so the environment's at an all-time high. And he's chosen to go there and the footy, I don't know I want to speak for him, but the footy might even be secondary. I want to go to a great environment and hopefully my footy flows with it. Well, the money's guaranteed. I mean, we were talking earlier. I <laughs> said so that's but that, but you know, no, but that, that's not yeah, an issue for him. Do like, yes. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that, it's that's, a factor. That, yeah. that's, he doesn't have to worry about that. Well, you're guaranteed a couple of years at least. That's right, yeah. I mean, we are talking about Geelong earlier. They've let Mark O'Connor, who played in the premiership side this year, he's played, he's gone and played um, garlic footy for Kerry on the weekend in their basically in their semi final. Now there'd be a lot of clubs who would say, no, no, you're not going to go and play high level sport where you might get injured to do it. But in terms of the what comes back the other way, in terms of the human, but investing in the we hear this a bit, don't we? The investment in the person, what you might get back uh, if you do that as a footballer, you don't really know until you do it. I think it's. It's still got to go on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, if you're yeah. a soft tissue risk, there's no way in hell you should be like – and I don't think Mark is from from what I understand of his career. But I think, yeah, what you get back in terms of um, community, like I know a lot of the Geelong boys were over there as well. Like, yeah, they were. The kind yeah. of culture and connection you get from stuff like that, it would mean a lot to, to Mark, I assume, and it would mean a lot to the boys that he wanted them over there. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you can lose in that situation. Yeah. But, I mean, we'd be talking very differently if, if he did get injured or – or something like that. I think for the most part, it's it's a great investment in him as well, in the <laughs> football club. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm keen to, to ask you, Liam, about you know, your current situation, but what's your current uh, frame of mind in terms of where you're at? You, there's a lot of unknowns. If you had an opportunity, I'm sure you feel like there were more opportunities that you you would have loved to have received that you didn't. So what's your, how do you, you know, you're still training. You're saying that you're training hard at the moment. How do you... How do you maintain the rage? Is it just purely that next opportunity? What's what does it look like for you each and every morning? Um, 
Oh, maintaining the rage is pretty easy. Like there's a lot of external motivation um, mm. at the moment and that's not always there, but I'm pretty lucky to have it at mm. the moment. Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to stay ready as much as I can. Um, I'm in a, in a position where you get no guarantees. So um, for me, it's just staying ready. Um, if that's, you know, a contract as a delisted free agent, then super. If that's a train on spot, then super. Um, if that means I have to go and play VFL next year, super. Um, I started to really enjoy my football at the back end of this year and, mm. Um, you know, no one can take that away from me now. Um, I know how to enjoy my footy. So whatever yep. level that's at, um, I'm still really confident, you know, I can be a really good AFL player. I've never really lost that belief and, um, albeit over a tumultuous, you know, yep. four years at the <laughs> football club, um, I've still maintained that belief. Um, I guess it's just staying ready and, and being in the best possible position to, um, to be a value to a football club. Uh, do you feel more equipped because it's a it's a really unknown situation you spoke about you know anxiety and those different things do you you feel more equipped or you still have to really check yourself at different stages with the i guess the fear of the unknown um i think um sometimes the language around like mental health can be a bit skewed like it's always a management thing mm. like it never really goes away and particularly i left mine go for so long that it's a everyday management thing but um I think I'd be really worried about myself if this happened two years ago mm. um, because I wasn't in a position to deal with it well. But at the moment, um, I'm just really grateful for what I do have. Um, and what I do have is love and family and a girlfriend. And I know it's a cliche, but um, I know next year, regardless of where I'm playing footy, I'm going to be having fun. So um, as much as I'd love that to be in the AFL, um, sometimes footy's not fair and, and that might be the scenario. What's the most important thing or things to being able to deal with these sorts of challenges? Um, depends on who you are. Um, for me, it's my support network. Mm. So being able to have um, people who I trust tell me how it is. Um, so whether that's my dad, my manager, um, particularly dad, because he's, he's brilliant at it. Um, he knows when I'm not quite right and he knows when I have to get a serve. Um, and I know some parents aren't comfortable doing that, but dad knows it gets the best out of me. Um, my girlfriend's really good at it. Um, she notices when I'm down or when I'm too high up. Um, I think for the most part, trusting them to, to recorrect if I can't. Mm. Um, that's sort of been my weapon over the last couple of years now is that um, if I start sliding, like I can pick it up in a matter of minutes rather than what it used to be, which was, you know, weeks, months at a time. Um, that's my greatest superpower now. Like mm. stuff goes wrong and I just get on with things. Um, so, so what would you tell it, – it, like it's quarter past five, so there's a chance that there's – you know, kids, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids in cars going home from footy with their mums and dads or whatever, listening to the radio station. If What what, what, would you, what do you tell them? If there's kids that, are, that they haven't had it diagnosed, they haven't, they haven't got a name to put to the way they feel or the challenges they know they're um, confronting but haven't had somebody else kind of come to the party yet, what? What would you say to them in terms of being a starting point to kind of, you know, get yourself heading in a better direction? Um, there's a heap. Uh, there's a heap of uh, resources you can use. So um, the first step is um, you can go to your GP and you can get a mental health care plan, um, which often involves a psychologist as well. Mm. Um, you've got the big three, which is a psychologist, psychiatrist, medication. Um, that's if you're a little bit further down the line. Um, if you feel like you're a danger to yourself or others, um, there's Lifeline, Beyond Blue, um, for men, the Black Dog um, Association, um, which operates mainly in Victoria. But there's a heap of avenues. I, I think the the big thing to encourage is to not lose hope. Like, 
there's help around the corner. Um, you've just, honestly, you've just got to look for it a little bit. Um, but even using your family as a resource, like yeah. they care about you um, and they're willing to put the work in for you. Um, and that was the biggest thing for me, like telling my parents about it was really difficult, but now I get the most resources out of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just be open with it. Um, you know, nobody's going to hack at you for, for experiencing feelings the way you are. Um, just be confident that the people you tell are the people you care about and they care about you. Um, not much can go wrong from there. How does it all marry up? So you go back to when you were 16. So, you you've, you know, you, your dad went and worked in, in Beijing and you went over as a young kid. And it was six or seven years later you came back and then, you know, you're already into the kind of team sport. It's already, it's grip chart and that's what you want to do. When you get to 16 and you're on an elite pathway, which you were at that stage, you've already been identified as a, you know, as a high-level potential footballer, how does it marry up? So you've got the, the physical um, face value, superficial side of you that can't get any better. Good-looking kid, good footballer, got everything going for me. And yet what you're experiencing internally doesn't seem to be going along for the ride. How, how was that to deal with? Um, it's probably the most confusing part of it for me. And that's what I struggled with the most until really I spoke to a psychiatrist, um, who explained the hormonal effect. Like before that, um, it's quite hard to get a grips with. I didn't really feel like I'd have had any real struggles in my lifetime. Like I got to live overseas. Um, you know, I was, some would call me a silver platter. Um, so for the most part, I had nothing really to complain about, but I think the guilt of feeling that way almost compounds the issue. Um, so for me, it, it took a really long time. You know, that COVID season was pretty much all about working through the things I had going on. Um, but yeah, I guess I was, um, I was pretty remiss just of thinking of the things I didn't have for a lot of that time rather than the things I did. Um, and it's funny how, you know, a change of your mindset can, can restructure the way you think about your own mental health or, or how your mental health acts. And I guess for me, that was as simple as it is. That was probably the biggest difference. Like, um, spending my days uh, wallowing in self-pity because I didn't have certain things um, to now, you know, I enjoy getting to go for runs and, yeah. and the little things like that. Um, they're, they're the tangibles that can't really be taken away from me now. Um, but I think at the time, like, that's what I found the most difficult part. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Liam Stoggart, special guest. We'll let you go in a moment. So you've gone through what you've gone through and then you get the news, which is the sledgehammer for a footballer that um, you're not required here anymore. Thanks, but we're going to move in a different direction. How did you? How did and if I may, Carlton, there's some Carlton supporters who don't necessarily agree with the decision that the footy club made, but that's by the by. Um, <laughs> how did you? How did you deal with that? Um, oh, I had to go into self-preservation mode a bit. Um, I was pretty shocked. I, I went in there thinking, you know, I probably deserve an, another year or two here. Um, I felt like. I'd been pretty selfless in the roles I'd taken up over the past three or four years. Um, and for the most part, I just feel like I had a lot to offer, but um, that's sort of by the by. Uh, footy clubs have got to make the decisions they do. Um, mm. So for me, it was, you know, in terms of that self-preservation, it was just, all right, thanks thanks a lot, guys. I'll say my goodbyes now, but um, clean your locker out and, and I won't be back. Um, I think for me, that would have been the most dangerous thing is, is coming back. I wanted to, you know... I really respect the Carlton supporters for the most part. You know, they made my time there really enjoyable. I don't want to tarnish anything that I was given in those four years. So um, for me, it was about taking the emotion out of it a bit and getting to a safe place where I could think it through. And um, that was at home for me with my girlfriend and my family. And 
Um, as much as it stings, you know, I've got a lot to be grateful for. Um, you know, if I wasn't at a football club, I don't know where I'd be after the struggles I've had. Um, and I was really lucky to have a guy like Brent Stanton involved in the football club who, who really helped me out with it. Um, so I, I think, um, it was, I was really sad about it. Don't get me wrong, but, um, I guess I've been trained sort of after a few years with a psych psychologist to, uh, to think about the positives I've got and, and the positives I do have are the things that can't be taken away from me. So, you know, as much as it did suck, um, I got on, got on with things pretty quick. Oh, yeah. What, what can you offer a, now players typically know themselves best where, what can you offer an AFL team and in which role? Um, well, I think that's the strength really. Um, I've played as a forward, I've played as a midfielder and I've played as a defender. Um, I think the notion that I'm not fit enough to play AFL football's rubbish. Um, I know I can run. Um, I ran a 6.32k in pre-season, which is the mm. equivalent of what most other midfielders are running as well. So um, from that point of view, I, I think um, if that's my main weakness, I've, I've got that to a point where it's not as standout as what it used to be. But I think um, for the most part, my ability to, to lock down on players and beat them in a contest is, is what stands out. Um, across the ground. I think being in a contest more often is probably what suits me. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm willing to play that lockdown role if it means I'm doing a job for the team. Um, I don't really mind. I think I'm an asset all yep. over the ground. Yep. Um, but also I think I'm an asset off the field now. No doubt. Um, and, you know, clubs aren't going to pick you up just because you're an asset off the field. Yep. Um, it, it's a silly notion um, to think that. But I think for the most part, I'm, I'm quite valuable for culture and, and I'm quite valuable in terms of the roles I can play. Uh, it'd be a travesty if you're not on an AFL list next year, mate. So um, good luck. Thank you. Good luck with everything else that you got. I mean, it's a, it takes um, for a 22-year-old, 22? 22-year-old 22 <laughs> young man, young person to um, front up and discuss what you're discussing. Uh, I think it takes well enormous amount of bravery. It does, yeah. Um, so good on you for doing that. And, you know, hopefully it's a message that, uh, organisations that have the care of young people at their core um, will take on board and maybe give you a ring and say, listen, can you come out and have a chat to our 15 and 16-year-olds? Because I reckon it's a really valuable lesson that you've got to share with them. Good luck with everything. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much. Good boys. luck, Matt. Liam Stocker joining us on the show.